Hello and welcome to the Potshot Podcast, an Arsenal podcast for nerds. I'm Alex Towles. And I'm Alex Collins. And this time we're joined by friend of the pod, Max. Hello, Max. Hey guys, how are you? Pretty well, pretty well. Yourself? I'm not bad. Good to hear. We're going to talk about two big Manchester clubs. One who we've just beaten, and another one who we've got coming up at the weekend. We're going to go really in-depth on the United game, talk about exactly what made our performance tick, before looking ahead to the City game and having a think about how exactly we can approach that game. Because even though it's just the FA Cup, or just the FA Cup, it's going to give us a good idea of what we can expect from City in the future and how we're going to go about playing them. First things first, we won 3-2. Incredible drama at the end with a late winner off of Eddie's knee? Foot? Shin? Whatever. So, like, what was I it? actually need to rewatch that one because I thought it was Odegaard at the time and then I thought it was an Odegaard assist and apparently it was, wasn't that It either. was Eddie's like, yeah. like ankle joint. Yeah, like, yeah I think that was foot. it. <laughs> Odegaard shot, Eddie touched it, the ball went in the goal, pandemonium happened, it made my weekend. And as I'm sure it did yours, dear listener, but it was definitely a kind of game where the scoreline suggests that it was very, very even and United went toe-to-toe with us and we just crept over the line. Max, is that how you feel the game played out or was it a little bit less even than that? I... I do not feel that it was an even game. I think Manchester United did a good job of disrupting us a little in the first half, but I don't think that means they really created anything of value. Um, and also, I think we're really used to dominant first halves um, from Arsenal. I think uh, we've scored like 14 goals this season in the first 30 minutes, and we did score in the first 30 minutes here, but it was obviously it was an equalizing goal. So... I think it was just a case of like the score was closer than the game. It it reminded me a little of how like after the Tottenham game at home, everyone was like, "Oh wow, Tottenham had all these great attacks." And it's like just because they're <laughs> dribbling in your half, that doesn't mean it's a a good attack. Like I know that it's scary because Rashford's incredible and because of you know the emotional weight of the game. But I I mean, it I think we they had three shots in the box and three shots out of the box and that was it for the whole game so i don't i, I think it just felt close but really wasn't yeah alex uh, we said speaking of rashford you said in the last episode that you were scared of him and i think you were proven right it, was it fair to say that he was united's main man yeah so i think uh speaking about both of you guys have used the word scary that's what i would call that half like there were scary moments some of really good quality from Rashford in particular. I think also scary moments from us losing the ball in like places where we're not used to losing the ball. But, and I would say he was your main man to answer that question for sure. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of like looking at the game, it was dominant from the start to finish. Um, and I think you can even kind of look at that in the shots, right? We had 25 shots, um, over the whole game. And despite what Eric Ten Hag was saying, we had 20 from inside the box. Uh, that's the most Man United have conceded inside their box since their 4-1 loss to City back in 2019. It's also the most this season, second only to City, taking 21 shots against uh, in the box against Leeds of all teams, right? So I think it was a particularly dominant performance from the box, even more so than we actually normally have. 
I do kind of agree that maybe not all of them were clean, but the fact that we were getting there into those areas, taking those shots is, is a pretty good, like taking a step away, pretty good indication of the game. On their side, they had six, six shots, three from outside, three from inside, like Max was saying. It was 3.25 x3 from us versus 0.36 x3 from them, according to uh, Footmob, who I think used stats bomb data. Um, we had in the first half 1.22, in the second half 2.03. You'll forgive me, I'm not normally the stats guy, but I just think it's good to kind of lay that out. And their highest XG shot was 0.09. We had 10 shots that were equal to or above that over the course of the game. So I would say it was a particularly dominant performance from us from a team level maybe there were some scary moments we had some individual struggles I think Partey and Ben White didn't have their best passing games Odegaard maybe even in the first half um, but there was a very dominant system performance that kind of showed as Max was speaking there was a lot of energy in the first half but as we got to the second half and they tied up we just started running through them even with more ease. Yeah, Alex, as you alluded to there, we're not normally a numbers podcast, but you have just thrown <laughs> the maths book at us. Is, is there anything we can like learn from those numbers, or is it just our number was bigger, therefore we were better? See, so I'm not normally like, what, what you know, the stats sort of guy, because I don't think they are often that valuable, Um, but I, especially on a game-to-game basis, but I think when you look at it, in context of the performance and also watching it back. It's very clear where these numbers come from. And I think stats like how many touches you have inside the box. I think we had 60-something touches in their box. And shots, I think, is very... That's very telling of where it comes. Maybe not so much the XG totals themselves, because, you know, for example, like Ten Hag was kind of pointing out, they were blocking a lot of our shots and stuff. I think that's fair. But I think the fact that we were getting there with that much ease and the quantity of shots compared to theirs is telling of of the actual dominance in both uh, our third and their third. Maybe the middle third was a bit different. There was a lot more. We That's where we struggled. And I think that's where most of the, the game was most equal, that middle third sort of battle. United were very energetic in their in their press there, um, in getting to us, um, in cutting out a lot of our, our passes down the lines. And that's probably where I would say we were most equal, but in both in both other thirds, not so much. Yeah, we again spoke last week about how last time we played United, we didn't have Thomas Partey in there, we had Sambi in there, and we talked about how we struggled because of that. This game, we did have Sambi. Max, do you think that made as big of a positive impact as we thought it might do before the game? Yeah, I I think it definitely did, just because United's goals in the home game really came from us leading, like, 50 yards of space in a 1v1 multiple times and well I think I think Thomas Partey did have a bad game um in possession I mean I this is a, a frequent gripe I have with him where he's like so relentlessly vertical in this passing that sometimes he just loses the ball too much and he loses the ball for the Rashford goal and it's I you know so sometimes I I wish for like that Mo Elneny you know sideways backwards security just because like the, there there's a time and a place but uh but I think his off ball impact and his defensive impact are like pretty invaluable to this Arsenal team and I you know we we were still like obviously if you look at stats like field tilt like we were spending the whole game or the whole second half anyway in the final third and you know that's a very different thing 
with Thomas Partey there defending transitions compared to Sambi, who that that's just not a strength of his. Which I don't really blame Sambi for because I think when we bought Sambi to understudy Thomas Partey, we had not really started this like single pivot experience with Partey and. You know, he was he had usually a partner in midfield, and it was before we moved Jaka forward. And so I think Sampy's just unlucky because we need a different type of player than we needed when we bought him. I think that's a very fair point on Sampy that we probably should have touched on the other week in terms of how the roles changed. I mean, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what Arteta had planned, um, but yeah, I think that makes sense because Sampy at under left certainly was more of a double pivot player, where he had someone to kind of be alongside him create that stability rather than having to be the stability. But your point about party and possession was actually particularly interesting to me because during the half, well, during the game, I thought, especially in the first half, I thought that they were maybe trying... Because Eric, Eric Ten Hag does his homework on players and individual actions of those players, right? And part is very relentlessly vertical. Not only that, but also you can kind of predict what he's going to do when he touches it. He likes to get those balls and kind of play them almost blindly down areas where he thinks players should be able to run onto it. And I kind of thought during when watching in real time that perhaps they actually had people jumping out lines for those passes, being prepared for the action as he kind of got the ball. It kind of played out to be less true on rewatch, but I still think there was something there about how they were closing onto him, knowing where he wanted to look for. And that's why we were maybe struggling to get those balls through that middle third, particularly. Another thing that we talked about last week but in relation to the Spurs game that we played last weekend was the defensive job that Bukayo Saka did and that he was tracking Sessegnon uh, back into our back line and making sure that Sessegnon couldn't make any runs in behind. What we saw this game was Saka being used well defensively again by Arteta but this time he was marking Luke Shaw. Alex what did you make of Saka's role out of possession? Uh, yeah, I think we've seen it a couple times this season now. Um, we we often add Saka, especially depending. I mean, I think when we look at um, the Spurs game, it was kind of just to have that man-for-man and not let them outnumber us. And also just to have a handle on Sesson Young, who was maybe their, mo- their biggest off-ball threat in behind. Um, I think it's a similar scenario here, less so about off-ball threat, but more Luke Shaw is one of their biggest progressors of the ball. He's probably maybe their second best player you could argue, behind Rashford at the moment. So they, we just had to have an extra man on him, especially with Ben White having to deal with Rashford. So I think that was largely, largely what we were going for there. It often ended up in us even having a sort of a 5-3-2 shape as we drop back into our block. Speaking of our block, there was a lot of noise made about how we were defending out of possession on the internet. Friend of the show, John McKenzie, uh, noted our mid-block on Twitter in particular, um, talking about how he wasn't really, he hadn't really seen much of it before from us this season. Uh, but before we really dig into like our mid block, let's talk about what a mid block is. A block is the shape that you are in when the opponent is in settled possession. And then the mid block would be when we're kind of in that middle of the pitch. It's not a high press where we're up against them. It's not a low block where we're back against our own block. It's somewhere in the middle. So it's a mid block. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think what's more interesting for us is... is um, I will disagree with John. I think we've been using mid blocks often this season. I think what's more interesting is that we move between passive and aggressive mid blocks. So I think the way I would differentiate there is aggressive mid blocks are kind of 
um, the whole system kind of goes um, with a pressing trigger, often like a pass between the center backs, and then everyone goes and tries to, you know, almost gives up a little bit of that stability of the block itself just to win that ball back. So kind of like a high press situation, but triggered from deeper. We do that quite a lot. Um, but here against United, we kind of had a very passive mid block. And I think there was about 30 minutes in, there was something I was actually going through with John looking at how, um, we kind of used Eddie just to kind of steer, not really try win the ball back and just maintain the, this like very rigid block. And I think the reason why we did this versus United is because they don't really have technicians in the middle to bother us. They were actually completely vacating the block. The only person they were leaving in at times is McTominay. Um... And then they just had everyone kind of around. They were just trying to work the space around either side, just to trying to get more space for Rashford, particularly to kind of have something to do. But it wasn't really working. We weren't bothered. They were trying to pull us out of shape a bit and swapping guys around, having Bruno Fernandes sort of drop out of the block deep, trying to have, I think I would say, Partey follow him. But it wasn't working. And we were just very content with them having the ball, you know, around the skirts of our half, but just maintaining that shape. One of my favorite expressions, I forget who said it, but like the idea that Arteta's coaching dad is David Moyes and his cool stepdad is Pep Guardiola. <laughs> and I do sometimes feel like Arsenal, like especially, maybe it's just because it was the first game of the season, it was stuck in my mind, but at Selhurst Park, it, it kind of felt like 30 minutes of Pep and then 60 minutes of Moyes. And so I think being able to like be so free-flowing and expansive and ambitious in possession and then switch to suddenly out of possession being super disciplined and rigid you know without really going full low block is just like a really important you know feather in our bow i think the other thing is we can go full block if we need to like it just we can depends. we absolutely can we're really good it at just, it that's what it rob holding on, is there for. The, exactly <laughs> But yeah, but I think it, it that's a, like a good point. It's just, it depends on the situation. I think we're very comfortable with every situation. It's also why that PPDA and stuff has always kind of annoyed me because a high-pressing thing doesn't mean that it's a good block. Yeah, I found that so confusing last season because I felt like people kept saying that Arsenal don't press and I I I was baffled by it. And then it, it emerged that it was like people looking at this volatile PPDA stat and I was like, oh, okay, that that kind of explains the disconnect here because we're just a very different team in possession and out of possession. Yeah, and we've been a good blocking, we've been a good pressing team. It's just mm -hmm. good pressing is different to high pressing, essentially. Yeah. You've got Probably. to pick your moments. We talked a little bit earlier about Rashford and how he was United's main man uh, driving their attack forward. Uh, but our main man, as has been increasingly the case, was Bukayo Saka. Uh, but it wasn't just him, of course. There was a whole front three. Had a really amazing game here against United. Max, what did you make of Saka's performance? Yeah. I'm pretty much just running out of words for Saka. I mean, he's... I guess the thing that is really exciting is that... I mean, we know he's, you know, like... He is inevitable, you know, like running at him 1v1 is you are you are doomed and Luke Shaw I think has been one of the best left backs in the Premier League this season and he is like giving Saka that that space and stepping off of him which is you know big sign of respect I think seeing him really you know score from outside of the box from a tough angle in a huge game to take the lead that is maybe something that we haven't seen 
you know, I mean, not to say that he isn't good in big games. He's excellent in big games. But I, you know, if just adding really that like that big moment, I, the clutch gene, if you will, the clutch gene, really, yeah. I think he'll like. I mean, you see, he tried it again later and and hit the post, you know. So I think having Saka, ha- you know, have that on top of like everything he already had, you know, he's already the best or second best, you know, right winger in the Premier League this season for me. On top of that, having the confidence to just take really, really ambitious shots instead of, you know, honestly, every time he, you know, dribbles up the right, I just always assume something is going to happen from him. Alex, I get the feeling, I get the feeling your opinion is saying he's the second or third best winger, right winger in the league is not high enough praise. Well, you know what? At the beginning of the season, I had him kind of like third, I'd probably say. Um, I even had him behind Kulisevsky, who I rate very highly, like until a couple months ago. But I think the, the level he's kind of hit since October, it's hard to say that he, he's definitely the best right winger on form in the league. And I think since about October, he's hit that level. It doesn't really feel like it's just a form thing. I think even though he's kind of scoring low value goals or whatever, I think you could say, right? I think it's it's less about the output. It's just about what he's doing every time he's on the ball. He is making something happen, like Max was saying. Um, I would say he's the best right winger in the league at the moment. Um, yeah. We talked a lot recently about Eddie Nketiah uh, and the way that his role and his input to the team has changed the way that we play ever so slightly. But he was, again, very, very good in this game. Alex, what was... What did you think Nketiah did best in this game? Uh, I think he was great at relieving pressure, getting the ball through to him very quickly. We were moving very quickly through the thirds, I think. I mean, despite the two goals, which he was excellent, um, as, he, as he always is getting, you know, we're getting back into that six-yard six Nketiah sort of classic goal. I think he scored both from very close. I think the best role he was kind of doing was just getting in, in us being able to play through the thirds quickly, get the ball to him, hold up, play the play the ball off, and then get moving again, occupying the centre-backs as well, creating a little bit more space just in front of the the goal mouth for for us to get some of those shots off was another thing. And I think that's obviously a big key difference that we have benefited our midfielders like Odegaard, who do like to kind of arrive quite late. It has benefited from that change from Gabby J, who really does want to get onto the ball in those areas and make something happen. Eddie's a poacher. That's his, like, nature. He knows when he needs to kind of, like, fuck off and like get out the way and pull someone with him and yeah that's also what leads to those sort of shots that we've been having from those areas max what did you make of eddie's game here against united and also what do you think of his input into the side over these last few games um so i'll i'll acknowledge my priors which is that i've been an eddie defender for a long time oh I was, yes i remember both of us see we, was, this is our moment yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is our moment. I I have a friend who I got in like a legitimately huge argument with because he was insisting that Eddie is not good enough. And I was like, just watch. And now I send him a little winking emoji every time Eddie scores. <laughs> um, yeah, I it's funny because I've I've spent, you know, the better part of a year arguing like, you, you know, that people's image of Eddie as, you know, just this six yard box player is outdated. He's so much more than that. And then in this game, he scores two goals from the six yard box. Um, but I think that just underscores his improvement because he still has that incredible instinct inside the box. You know, he uh, his movement is terrific, but then also his his value in possession has is just a complete 180 from you know from where he was. 
a year, year and a half ago. You know, I think he's just, just like Alex said, you know, I think he's so important to helping us get through the thirds. You know, he's a really, really good outlet for us. You can give him a long ball over the top like Saka does at some point and Eddie's marked, you know, two on one and he has the pace to, you know, to get away. And if he, if he can't go towards goal, you know, he'll go towards the corner flag and buy everyone else some time a little bit. Um, so it's, I'm so glad that, I mean, I, I genuinely don't think you get really many second center forwards as good as him. Like, I don't, I don't think there is a, you know, transfer market solution out there that would really, like, realistically be better than Eddie Nketiah. So I'm, I'm so glad we didn't lose him. And also, uh, I mean, going into, like, soft factor stuff for a bit, I think a big part of the reason that people are having so much trouble, like, giving Arsenal credit this season is that we're top of the league in like the most fun way possible. Like if you asked me what I to fantasize, I would have been like a bunch of academy players scoring against Manchester United to keep <laughs> us top of the league. And so to to then have another one making such a big contribution at a point when a lot of people probably thought our season was doomed, at least in title terms, when Jesus went down is just so, so huge. And I mean, I'll admit, I was I was one of the first to kind of think that we would kind of fall away. I was terrified when we lost Gabby J because he was so important to the system. Despite how much faith I have in Eddie, especially his development over the last two years, right? I mean, I remember at the beginning of the season, I was saying he'd be first choice for Chelsea. He'd be first choice for United as a centre forward. Someone brought up that he'd probably be first choice for Liverpool at this point, And I don't entirely disagree um, that he would that he would be. I think he's a fantastic player, but... Despite that, I thought just how important the system had been with Gabby J that we would fall away. And he's just the way we've been able to adapt the system, kind of almost like a throwback to to what we were doing last season using Martinelli sort of high and wide, doing a little bit more of like the, the grunt work, I would call it, in terms of balancing the attack. Um, and then having... It is essentially the way I'm looking at doing what Laka was doing at centre-forward, the way he drops in, plays far more of a vertical game than, you know, moving to the sides... Um, as, as Gabby J was doing for us, Gabby J was literally going wherever. Um, but he does it just much better. He's much more mobile, probably stronger than Lucky is at this point. Um, and obviously he, his goal threat is just, it's much better than Lucas was in his last couple of seasons. I think his movement's always been better than anything Lucas ever put up. So, so yeah, it's been fantastic. We've just kind of changed that system. I think Arteta deserves a lot to, to suit Eddie rather than trying to make him fit the sort of role that doesn't necessarily suit his game. Yeah, it's been really nice to see this, like, almost ultimate form of the football we were playing last season. But there is still one thing that's a major part of our game now that we didn't have last year, and that is Alexander Zinchenko. We have been waxing lyrical about him in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to do it again because he was amazing on Sunday. One of the most impressive things about the way that he played is that he had two different roles in the two different halves of the game. Alex? Yeah, I think first half, what we were doing, and I kind of skipped over it when we were speaking about the halves and, you know, the game itself and how we were moving through the halves is what we've been doing against teams that press with a front three. We play a very flat back four. We've done it against Liverpool. We did it against Newcastle quite well until Newcastle changed up a little bit. Um, and we did it again. Here, the sort of idea is that they press with a front three that kind of move across the four. What we did with Zinchenko is he just sat really wide, pulling Anthony onto him, forces both their other two guys, which would be Rashford and Verkhorst, would have to then kind of go onto the centre-backs. 
frees up Ben White, who we then got the ball to. Could work the other way as well. That's sort of what we were doing, but the concept is the same. Um, and yeah, it, it helped free the opposite fullback. I think we did it quite well. We started quite a few nice attacks down that way. Um, but then in the second half, and apparently this is what Man City did versus, I'm told, um, versus Man United is that we actually used one of them to kind of almost counterintuitively inverse or invert, right? Come inside and move into the midfield. What that does is then Anthony doesn't follow him. It creates like a 3v3. But, you know, um, two things can happen. A Zinchenko now isn't marked anymore. He's dismarked himself. He can drop in to receive. But what also happens at the same time as another passing option is Jaco was moving out wide to recreate the flat back four essentially, but also drag his marker with him, which either creates Xhaka's, you know, dynamic advantage of the movement can free him up. But if there's someone on him, the midfielder that would follow, I think would be McTominay would basically be all of them would be marked, but now there's an overload in midfield. And I think that's what we were essentially doing in the first phase, right? Um, of building out. And a part of it also is why we're able to create that overload is that, um, Ten Hag doesn't use his fullbacks to, to jump to press. Like we often see Ben White, you know, when he does that huge thing basically into the third, into the own third to push up and add that extra man for that high press. They don't do that. We, we took use of it. We took advantage of it pretty well. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I also just think like he was inverting, but once we kind of got through that phase, he was just playing wherever he needed to, right? He he was moving out wide again when he needed to. He was moving into the middle. He was moving onto the right at times. We saw him kind of almost dribbling into the box um, through the right half space. So it's just so interesting to me, like, how completely free his role is. And we were speaking about it just before the pod started. It's almost like the Gabby J role that was in the previous system has kind of just been given to... Well, the previous version of the system has been given to, to, to Zinchenko just to kind of carry and add overloads and add plus ones wherever he needs to and just move through the team in a very, very fluid way. One of my favorite things about the way that Zinchenko played, and it's not anywhere near as in depth an insight as you've just provided Rambly, us. Rambly, my bad. <laughs> but I, I really liked how often he was playing the ball forward, trying to play the, like, between the lines, trying to break United down. Like, uh, our first goal comes after, like, a corner comes out back towards Zinchenko, and then he pings the ball into Xhaka. It comes back out to him, and he pings it into Xhaka again, really forcing the initiative and making sure that we get forward and back into their box and start creating something and don't just lose the corner to nothing. So I think it's really, it, it's really nice having Zinchenko just able to pop up anywhere on the pitch, whether whether it be on the left hand side or whether he's inverting into midfield, pick up the ball and then give us that impetus to move forward again. Yeah, no, I've I've fallen in love with with Zinchenko like everybody else. Um, he is really just like an overload wizard who just materializes wherever he is needed um and i think it's so so different to what we would have gotten i feel like we would have had a pretty not conventional because it's like in to some extent inherently unconventional but like a pretty conventional inverted left back in lissandra martinez if we had gotten him i think that would have been his home um and zinchenko has no home he just goes everywhere and then he 
does like a very traditional overlap in in the 90th minute to create a perfect cutback for a winning goal. Like is like, oh, Martinelli's not there, so now I'm gonna go overlap. He's just, I, I mean, you can you could see a little bit of you know like the trust that Mikel has in Odegaard to really you know represent um, the on field tactics, uh, you know, and communicate them to the rest of the team. You could tell he has that in Zinchenko too. He just trusts Zinchenko to just go wherever he wants and contribute and just create an overload wherever he's needed. And, you know, going back to the issue I have with, with Thomas Partey's, you know, vertical path, I think Zinchenko being, you know, one of the best passers I've ever seen, you know, he has, he's an incredible progressor, but I also, I'm a sucker for just like a good, like, backwards through ball you know when he plays like kind of between the lines but like to recycle possession and keep it and uh, you know it's just like you could see on top of his technique he just has such good decision making and you know he he might have a hospital pass here and there you know he got he got caught briefly against Tottenham and gave away a chance but he's just you know such a plus passer and such a plus decision maker that he's just like really really invaluable he does kill me in that way because he's one of the most technical players I've ever seen. And then you randomly see him make like this easy cross pass deep in our own <laughs> half and he completely botches it. But then like a minute later, he'll be playing this perfect, perfect, like through the lines, through ball. Yeah. Both like opposition defenders kind of trying to touch it. It just slides perfectly into Jaco, the way Jaco wants to receive it. I don't understand how he can be like that technically amazing and then have like a, a random hospital yeah. pass. But you know what? It is what it is. And like Thomas Partey <laughs> does that all the time, you know, like maybe in le- in less threat, you know, less dangerous areas, except in this game where it was in a very dangerous area. But like he loses the ball trying to pull off a pass that is not necessary, like a lot. And Zinchenko does too, but way less, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the difference is Zinchenko, when it's a difficult pass, he'll, he knows how to execute it. Partey kind of forces the issue. He knows yeah. when to execute. I think Zinchenko maybe has a bit of like a concentration issue when it's not dangerous that he'll lose the pass. It's never really when he needs to yeah. execute a difficult ball through the lines or something like that. Yeah, and Zinchenko is also, he is always, he's so religious about trying to, you know, commit his player as much as possible mm. before making the pass that sometimes he just overcommits and lets them get a foot in the way. Let's have a look over to the other side then where it's fair to say that uh, old Ben White favourite Everybody's favourite, Ben White, had uh, an altogether more difficult game than Zinchenko did on the opposite flank. Got hooked at half-time, replaced by Tommy Asu. But before we talk about Tommy, why did Ben White come off after 45 minutes? Because he was kind of shite this game. Um, (laughs) I think he just struggled. I think apparently this is a thing that's been over all the games, but Rashford definitely has his number. Rashford had his number that game for sure. Um, he really struggled with him. I'm not sure why Rashford in particular. I think he's handled... Rashford is in, in some serious form right now, but he's handled similarly tough players before pretty well. So it just... It is what it is. Um, but what concerned me more was um, his passing was just really off this game. Oh, yeah. I was looking... I was, on rewatch, that's one of the things I was focusing on. There was no real reason for it. Maybe he was just so, sort of out of sorts this game, but he made some proper hospital passes. In areas I don't think I've ever seen him make those passes before like someone was saying that this is the worst game friend of the pod max taylor actually this is our second max so let's speak about the first one right he was saying this is the worst game he's ever seen ben white play and he's obviously someone who watches a lot of brighton 
I think Ben White maybe had one or two tough like appearances right at the beginning of his his start here. Um, but certainly on the ball, it was the worst I've ever seen him, and, and I don't really. There's no real reason for why it was like that. He just struggled, I think. Yeah, I I noticed his um bad in possession game as well. Like he just he he'd have the ball like in an area where we're normally so comfortable with seeing him. Like for example, just inside their half. Like, on the right-hand side, he's got Saka in front of him, Erdogan inside him, exactly as we're used to seeing him. And then instead of playing the ball that we're used to seeing from him, he'll just give it back to United. And then, whoops, it's a counter-attack. So it was definitely not his best game by any means. By contrast, then, uh, was Tomiyasu, like, amazing? Or did he just come in and play to par, do you think? Well, first on Ben White, I'm kind of relieved to hear Max say that because I was having the same thought, except I just didn't watch Ben White before he played for Arsenal. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who that was in the first half. It was not Ben White. It's it was like <laughs> Ben Shite. Like, ben Shite. Yeah, and he's allowed to have a clangor because he's so reliable. Uh, we un- we understand why Manchester United fans keep not putting him in the combined 11s when the only time they ever watch him, he plays like that. Yeah, I was like. <laughs> I was like, this is a test from Mikel Arteta. Mikel Arteta told Ben White to play badly, to, to try and flush out the people who are only watching him for the second time this season. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still waiting for the headline. It's like Ben White was struggling with the stomach flu or something. But I don't know. I think one of the things I think is a little... To the question about White and uh, Tomiyasu after he came on is... Um, I think one of the things that people who are not week in week out arsenal watchers have struggled to really grasp about ben white is that he is even though he is a center back who's playing at right back he's also just an excellent player in many many ways and is mostly just doing like normal fullback things like he is a very important partner for saka in attack he you know he does overlap when saka you know darts inside with the ball uh you know and he's still an excellent defender but he is not He's not, you know, just like this inverted, you know, center back hybrid that you that you would expect from a guy who used to play center back. Um, Tomiyasu, I thought, kind of was that today. I thought, you know, to the point about, you know, this game resembling last season's system a lot. It felt really familiar to me. Tomiyasu, it did feel like he was really stationed it in the middle of the field to really cut out those transitions. You know, Man United's only way out was really, you know, high balls over the top, and he was really, really effective at, at cutting those out, I thought. So was Zinchenko, by the way, which surprised me. Um, shouldn't surprise me by now, but um, but yeah, I think Tomiyasu was much more in that, that, you know, system we're used to seeing him in. He hasn't really gotten to play at right back this season. He's been at left back and he's been at center back, but this was, I thought, a little bit vintage in the way... He was cleaning up, he was cutting out transitions, and he was retrieving long balls so that we could, you know, stay high up and, and you know, and kind of do our thing in their half. And I thought he was really, really good at it. And I think it's great because when you need your backups, you don't want them to be on zero minutes all season and then mm-hmm. jump into the team. So I think it's, I'm really, really happy for him that he got to play and be involved because I think Ben White, you know, kind of like Gabriel, we take his durability for granted. He just doesn't miss that many games. Um, and so I'm, even though I, I'm not pleased to see him have a bad game, I'm really pleased to see 
Tomiyasu come on, be involved and be really, really helpful, you know, so that we can really just keep him in the mix. Yeah, I, I think that that note about him, like his more conservative role this game is quite important because we spoke earlier about how United's fullbacks don't jump up to press um, us when we're sat a little bit deeper. Ben White was doing that earlier in the game. He was jumping up to press Shaw alongside Saka. Uh, and I think that was actually a little bit worrying for us because it left Marcus Rashford in acres of space quite a few times and he did get found in that space a few times. Um, Tomiyasu, he did do it a couple times, but it never, like, it wasn't quite so much and it felt like whenever he did, we were like more secure behind him. And I think Tomiyasu did a better job of making sure that Rashford wasn't available in transition for United as much as he was in the first half. Alex, what did you make of Tomiyasu's performance? It's just interesting. It's, it's something I was thinking about now as you guys were speaking about. I'm more interested, I'll speak about his defensive job just now, but just in possession, when you're speaking about the familiarity with the system, right, is is one of the things that maybe why Ben White struggled is because we use him so flat, we use him closer to the touchline than we normally do, kind of, maybe a little bit higher at angles that we don't normally which is what we were doing last season a lot with Tommy, where he receives. And I think Tommy's very good with his angles, maybe in a way that Ben White isn't... It's underrated. He struggles a little bit more with receiving so fluidly. Like, once he once he's gotten his face the right way, um, he's very, very good. Like, he can, you know, dribble through anything, pretty much any sort of pressure. Tommy's a bit good at... Like, a bit better at receiving at, at awkward angles and then using his two-footedness to kind of work things out. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that's something why... Tommy also worked a bit better in possession in this game than than White than White did. Um, it's just a thought I would need to look it back. But yeah, if we're if we're talking defensively, um, Tommy's obviously not had the best sort of couple of appearances last few appearances since he's come on. Both in possession, I'm thinking of the Oxford game, um, and then also or the Oxford United game. Sorry, and then also versus Brighton, he really got like torn to shreds by Mitzema. Um, I think this game, Rashford gave him a couple of dangerous moments. I think, as one would, Rashford's in insane form at the moment. But, um, but yeah, basically, once we kind of, as we got into the half, I think Tommy got better and better at clamping him. I think uh, part of the reason was maybe in terms of why he struggled more against Mitzema than he did Rashford is, I think, Brighton just have a better system of being able to find players in space, work the space, put players into good positions. And then I also think we had Saliba kind of doing a double man job that any sort of ball, you know, Rashford and Tommy would be contesting for Saliba would be there to kind of clean up the, the second ball. So I think those are sort of things that play into the performance. But yeah, where I think Zinchenko was like monstrously good, I just think Tommy Asu was incredibly important to, to clamping Rashford. I think he had five touches in the last 30 minutes. I thought it was three. Yeah, it might have been less. It might have been less. It was it was hardly anything. And nothing substantial. Nothing substantial. There was no touch and carry. It was sort of like a touch and maybe pass back sort of situation. Or lose the ball situation. I'm I'm convinced it's like it's a it's a banter point, but I also think it has some salience that like at some point these players were like, Oh, we don't care what Anthony does. You can leave him. Like we can well let's Put all our efforts on, you know, on United's left side because Anthony is. <laughs> if he get, if he gets the ball, you know, we'll we'll cope with that. Yeah, shame. I I feel like 
That might be right, but also there's probably something to the fact that the instant he came off, Matt Rashford stopped getting the ball. Uh, I haven't That's watched true. the game in enough detail in that specific respect to see what changed there. Maybe it was the fact that Bruno moved out to right wing and so he stopped progressing the ball to Rashford. But I, I definitely think Anthony off for Fred is a big reason why Rashford didn't touch the ball much in the last half hour. I think I think that the point about Anthony does like hold some weight in terms of when I was watching what he's pretty good at is he can receive like difficult passes into his feet kind of carry and then recycle back and keep possession that way which helps when you're trying to move the ball around right but in terms of the threat the goal threat he offers he pretty much offered nothing I think it's it's a huge amount of money to pay for for someone I'm, I'm trying to be a bit like generous yeah I, I was expecting more I was impressed with him in the Champions League when I've watched him before so I'm, I am a bit surprised that he's he's lacking so much in terms of even creative play but yeah um, I don't think we were particularly threatened by by Anthony at all, and as Vax was saying earlier, Zinchenko completely dominated him in any aerial stuff. Even even Juan Bissaka, he was he was taking on aerially. I mean, I th- I think as a player in general, Anthony is you know is helpful in kind of you know getting them up the field, buying time for others, and and then recycling it. In this game, I kind of thought if. Like some of the conversations we're having about Partey and White, I feel like they're having about Anthony. I felt like he was giving possession away constantly, maybe a little bit less as as time went on. But you know, he would get it in a dangerous area and then go for like a hopeless shot or completely mistime his cross or something. So I think it might be a strength of his in general, but I don't know. I would I I I didn't really see it this game. See, I think I think it's 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 situational, right? When when there's yeah. a chance for him to kind of create, I think he's quite wasteful. But when mm-hmm. it's just when he's put in positions where he just needs to keep possession, I mm-hmm. think he was pretty good. Um, but obviously, that's not really what you want from your like a hundred million pound. Yeah, <laughs> or you, uh, yeah, you want I'm a bit tr- more threat on goal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> was trying not to go there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I've bantered him enough. This is an Arsenal podcast, not a United one. So if you want, yeah. and if Shame you want to know more about Anthony' opinions, you can go and listen <laughs> to our friends Devils in the Details. I sure will be because I want to hear them talk about how we're better than them. But that's by the by. I, I want to scared. hear that as well. He's scared that Case and Aaron are going to block him. It's fine. We'll move on. No, we'll move no, on. I, I'm not scared that Case and Aaron are going to block me. I don't. Uh, but let's talk about another winger who's better than Anthony, Leandro Trossard. <laughs> uh, so he came on for a cameo in this game, coming in instead of Martinelli. And as Max mentioned earlier, he kind of played the role a little bit differently. He didn't hold the width quite so much. He was coming inside a lot, which gave Zinchenko the space to get around the outside on a more traditional fullback overlap and do things like create the final goal. So that's pretty cool. Max, what are your first Trossard impressions? Positive. Um, I, I mean, I like him. I've. I mean, I think, you know, I was listening to... Um, to a Brighton fan on the uh, the Arsenal Vision podcast, to the really good interview with with uh, Elliot Yankee Gunner that everyone should check out. Um, and I think you know Trossard is it from what I've seen of him and from what I've heard Brighton fans talk about him. It seems like you know this is a really this is a role that he would thrive in. Like he is a big game player, and um, and I think especially coming to a team not only that spends as much time in the final third as Arsenal do, but that also if you, you know, Trussard is someone who you, I, you know, 
a lot of the time will bring on when you're chasing a game. Then we're like really in the final third. You know, we like we know all the stats about how much that last 30 minutes, how much time we were spending in, in United's box, how many touches. They had 11 players in their box, you know, which like even Newcastle, which was a really strong defensive performance, even then they didn't, they would leave a couple men forward, <laughs> uh, you know. So I think that's just an environment for Trussard to really, really thrive in. And I do think having that variety of, you know, a substitute who comes on and doesn't do exactly the same thing that the guy he's replacing does, you know, I think that's going to be really, really helpful. I think if you've been, you know, tracking Martinelli all game and, you know, he's got chalk on his boots and then suddenly a substitute is, you know, kind of driving inside and then Zinchenko's in a zone that you wouldn't expect Zinchenko to be in. I think that extra unpredictability is something we've really been lacking off the bench. Like, you know, in addition to lacking quality off the bench, I think variety off the bench is, is something that I was really hoping we would add. And I think we've added it. See, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't disagree with, with that in terms of, I, I think one of the things I think Trossard's a really good player. I've, I've actually been a fan of his to some level for basically as long as he's been in the Premier League. Um, and while I agree with like, you know, fit off the bench and the cameo was good, right? While I agree with sort of performance, you know, that need for variety of the bench, which I think Trossard did offer, right? He's much better in those sort of spaces than Martinelli is. Much better sort of 360 control than Martinelli is, right? I think you also, given our, the tactical sort of shape, I would have wanted someone who could have done that almost from the start. And maybe, maybe it's not as important, right? But in terms of like what Martinelli gives the team, and obviously he's been struggling a little bit more in terms of output recently since the system's kind of changed from like that when Gabby J was in to now what we're doing with Eddie up front, right? I think it's still incredibly important to help balance the side. He still keeps the width, keeps the height, gets us into spaces, um, and creates that sort of, those sort of pockets just through ways pinning players to be able to, yeah, for, for everyone else to kind of, the rest of the attack to sort of thrive, right? I'm not sure Trossard can really do that. I don't think he's a good dribbler in terms of 1v1 bursting pass players, although he's got really tight feet. Um, he's not that pacey, I believe. Um, and then also just in terms of what else I would say, I wouldn't say he's that, I wouldn't say he's as creative as Martinelli in terms of balls from those high wide areas. I think he's quite creative in the pockets. Yeah. So, so those would, those would be my issues and why I'm not totally hot on the signing compared to other players. But I have warmed up to it, um, for sure. I think he is really good off the bench. I also think he, we're going to use him a lot in the Europa League where we'll have TNE keeping that with, you know, with, with whoever, probably Sambi, instead of being in that Jaka role, being in more of a classic pivot role. So I do, I'm, I'm happy with the signing in terms of us going for it. I do have some concerns about, if Martinelli gets injured, for for example, someone like Mudrik, obviously we couldn't get him, would be able to replicate the Martinelli role as well as offer something different. I don't think Tuasa can really do the Martinelli role. Yeah, I agree completely with all that. And I think also I, sh- I should mention that I, like, individually, because this is such a short-term signing, I think similar to, like, how I would evaluate Jeff Felix is I think the bar is, like, very, very low for how much he has to contribute to really be be worth it it's just not that much skin off you know like someone if you spend 100 million euros on a you know on a 22 year old anything short of sensational is kind of a failure as a signing with this it's like if he pops up with i don't know four goals worth three to five points in the next 19 games that's like kind of huge so that that's the lens that that i'm looking at him through 
And I, I think it, I agree with that. Like, it, it's a get the get the title over the line signing for sure. I don't think we make this sort of age profile signing a year ago when we're still fighting for top four even. I think it's just managing to to get that over the line. I, so I do agree with it from that from that extent. Um, it's just more about whether, like, you know, opportunity costs. Because I also do realize you're not going to go get another 80 million worth winger in this January market. Like, it just doesn't happen. The top teams have top players. The top teams don't want to sell in January. So it's not it's not on the table. Like, Trossard was kind of unique in even us being able to get him now because, you know, the coach wanted rid, he wanted out. It made sense in that, from that perspective. I was looking at, like, Fuller and Balogun because I thought maybe we we're going to be using him, you know, sort of like a, a central striker role. And then also having Trossard does make the whole route in for, for Balogun tougher. But that's a, that's a different story that we can get to at some other pod. Let's go for a break now, because we've been going for almost an hour, and we're not done yet. <laughs> so we'll be back in just a second to discuss Jakob Kivior and Manchester City. Ah, what a lovely break. That was a very nice time. So let's get back into the transfer discussion, because we're not buying Mudrick, after all. He's gone to Chelsea. Uh, he's looking annoyingly really good for Chelsea, but that's by the bye. Um... But that means we have £100 million that we are not spending on Mudrick that we can spend on other players. A quarter of that has gone on Trossard. Another sum of it has gone on Jakob Kivior, whose name I am pronouncing, I think, correctly. £20 million has gone on Kivior, I think. £20 million. So another fifth of the would-be Mudrick money has gone on Kivior. Uh, and there have been rumours abound that we will be bringing in possibly another one or two more in the time between now and the transfer window ending. So we're not going to spend too much time talking about Kivior on today's pod, mostly because none of us have really watched him. So all of our opinions will just be wrong. But I do want to quickly touch on if you think this is a good approach for us to take transfer-wise, where instead of getting one star piece to add as the icing on cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake we're going for three or four little pieces that will kind of sum up so hopefully make us a greater whole um max what do you make of our transfer strategy this window yeah so first of all it's, it's very nice to see us being active in january um i'm very pleased to see i was kind of worried that they would kind of see it like they approached last january where it's like top four would be great but we're not going to compromise you know the long-term plan for this and this is like we're currently in a position where i mean you could do everything perfectly in the summer and not be eight points or five points clear of city with a game in hand you know like you are right now uh so i'm glad to see us approach it that way i don't totally know what to make of it i like if it's totally a zero-sum game missing out on Mudrick. I think the like I, I think we might have done Kivior anyway I uh, some reporting came out that Edu was in Poland like before the new year um, and I think to to discuss um, Kivior and I think that was well before the great gazumping um, of Chelsea so I think that pla- I, and I think that probably <laughs> the great gazumping is an excellent yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that probably it's it's emerging that like one of the key factors in Mudra going to Chelsea was that Chelsea were willing to pay much more of the fee up front and Arsenal wanted to stagger it much more. And so I think 
you know, uh, we might have done this anyway. I think a left-footed center back has been on the cards for a while. We were linked with Hinkepi and Evan Indica. Um, so I think it's it's really tough to discuss this stuff without like the full benefit of hindsight. You know, the like not getting someone bad and then getting Gabriel Jesus in the summer was great. And if we, um, you know, if we go and get a really a serious long-term winger in the summer um, that we're all happy about. You know, no one will complain about Trossard. I think it's really good to see us pivot like this. I think the Trossard deal is just one where the worst-case scenario is something survivable. Like, it would it would be okay, you know, if he turned out not to be that good. You know, the wage isn't ridiculous. The contract length isn't ridiculous. Um, and so, I you know, I, I think we're taking a really good approach to this January market. I think it's also coming out of their concerns about Mohamed Elneny's fitness. Um, and so I, I hope we managed to get some cover in there. But, you know, we got good defensive cover who will also be here in the long term. And then we, we got a guy who, you know, scored, I think, nine or ten Premier League goals last season. So just adding that. In this, I mean, I think by January standards, that's really strong work. I think I agree. I kind of had the idea that we probably did go for it's sort of like a change of track from like Mudrick to um to Cuvio. I think it makes sense the way he I, I kind of agree with him. I also do think um one nice thing is we've kind of spent that money now in small parts so that there's not that like a hundred million winger sort of thing holding over your head, regardless of upfront payments and whatnot. It was still like spending power, if you put it out like that. And yeah, I agree with um with needing a left sided um centre back. We've needed that for time. And I think it was kind of an under because of the midfield being so key in terms of like what we've already seen when we lost Partey and Sambi not really doing the defensive job when he came in and just how important we don't really have a replacement for Xhaka. I think it's gone under the radar how bad like losing someone like Gabriel who's now played like fifty eight games in a row or something in the Premier League for us how badly that would be, how bad that would go, and how, how much we'd struggle. Um, so yeah, I definitely think Kivio coming in makes a lot of sense for that. I doubt if he can really be that defensive like midfielder covered. I haven't watched him. I just naturally, I think people always think that like some centre-back who can play a little bit further up can do the job there. But having said that, Thiago Motto is a very attacking coach. He came in and played defensive midfielder for Motto when he came to Spezia. So maybe he can. Maybe he can't. I have doubts, but but maybe he's that sort of midfield coverage. But I think the fact that we're still going for I've heard Anana, I've heard McKenney, who I'm a little bit less enthused about, does suggest that that's an important area. And I think if Elneny's out for the rest of the season or even a couple months, I would definitely look at midfield cover in terms of getting the title over the line. So I, I think we can all agree that a midfielder now is position number one on the priority list. Uh, but if we were going to bring in two more players between now and the end of the window, who would? Where would you want that second player to be? Probably just another attacker. Ideal. I mean, even I would not be against recalling Balogun at all. Um, the club seemed to not even be considering it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think the first half of the season we have like we have gotten lucky and we've been very very good but we've also been lucky you know like to take 50 points from 19 games you have some luck in the bank and there could be like some regression to the mean in the second half of the season where 
you know, the bounces just aren't going our way, which is, I think, a lot of what has happened to Man City this year, in addition to, like, very, you know, real reasons for their slowing down. Um, and so I think just having another attacker just to really, uh, almost just as a roll of the dice and just increase our odds of getting a jammy goal in a game where we feel like we can't hit a barn door. You know, I think of last season, the like the three game losing stretch of like Brighton Palace and uh, Southampton, like I was looking at our shot maps from those games and we created like six expected goals and let in and conceded like one expected goal. And we lost... I don't know, like five to one over those three games. And so it's just <laughs> when, when, you know, the variance gods come for us, I would just like to really be able to throw the kitchen sink at it. And, you know, I think, you know, back line depth was kind of what doomed us last season, you know, playing a clearly injured Gabriel and a clearly injured White and then Cedric and holding against Newcastle. Um, those fears are a little bit relieved for me right now. Um, and so I think if we if, if we get a midfielder, uh, obviously that's priority number one. After that, just another attacker would be gravy for me. We, we've mentioned a couple times the idea of bringing Balogun back in from loan, and I, I just want to say that I don't I, I don't think there's anyone at the club that's even considering that as a possibility. To be honest, like I I think if that was something that we were going to do. We would have seen Saliba recalled from loan last January because we had very little defensive depth, which we saw bite us in the backside in the run-in last season. So I think the fact that we've got the similar problem up top and uh, we're looking to bring in signings instead of recalling Balogun is just the scouting team doing exactly the same thing as they did with Saliba last year, where they probably feel that his development is best served by leaving out their playing regular minutes. Yeah, the Saliba one was a mistake, not recalling him. But I'm not sure if we had the recall option. I'm not sure if we have the recall option with Balogun. I think we probably would. I also think it's obviously a lot cheaper than buying Trossa, which was the bigger issue. I don't think we should get Balogun now or an attacker. I kind of do understand Max's point, but I think there's something to be said about everyone getting minutes to play. And I think now that we've brought someone in, I wouldn't really bring anyone else back. Apparently, Gabby J is already coming back sooner than expected, according to him. He says about five weeks. I think then we have enough to kind of do it where everyone's getting minutes. I think that's something that we've seen with Pep's always important that everyone, you know, that it's a balanced squad. I think it's one, it is a roll of the dice because obviously you could suddenly have two injuries that come out of nowhere. Like if Saka and then let's say Martinelli both injured now, now we're fucked, right? But I think it is one of those things. I, there's something to be said for squad balance. Yeah. So I think now that we've got that one in, I, I wouldn't really think that I would even. To be honest, what I would think is, <laughs> I don't think we need another person beyond we're, what we'll probably have, hypothetically, if we get another midfielder. That's three new players to play a role until the end of the season. I would say that's enough, right? I would I would just say, like, get Ivan Fresnader. He sounds really great. And then send him back on Lodoriel Valladolid, and then we'll get him next season. But if we had to bring in another fourth person, it would be a midfielder for me. Because I feel like losing someone in the Xhaka position is huge. Losing someone um, in the Partey position is huge. We spoke about this two pods ago with, with Shu. Um, and it also doesn't sound like there's a very super idea of where they want the new backup to be. Because I heard that we triggered a 52 million clause for... For what's his name? Um, Zubimendi, who is very much a six. And then now we're also going... Potentially going to spend 50 million on Onana 
who having watched him play DM at Lille, I don't think he's a great DM. I think he's a really good eight, defensive eight even, but not really a someone I'd want in the party role, at least not now. It makes more sense in the Jaka role. Anyways, we're making a lot of signings, which is good compared to last season where we just kind of didn't even go for a Morata in the last <laughs> dying embers of the window, which hurt. Let's talk about Manchester City, because we're playing them this weekend. It's in the FA Cup, it's not the Premier League, but it is a very good way of finding out how we're going to respond to the question that City pose us. Um, They, of course, are still a very good side. Uh, A side that, in the opinion of many, are the best team in the league, even though they are behind us by quite a few points on the table right now. And, of course, a team that's garnered many, many comparisons to us because of, one, the fact that we've been really good this season and the fact that Arteta used to be Guardiola's assistant at City. Alex, what do you make of those comparisons between Arsenal and City? I think they hold up. I think we do play with a, according to a lot of Pep's principles. I think you see a lot of, of Man City and Arsenal for sure. I do think there's some differences. Um, one of the biggest ones we spoke about on the other part is just player freedom under Arteta versus like the stricter positional sort of um, demands under Pep. I think Gabi J has spoken about that and why he prefers to play under Arteta a lot more um, than, as we've spoken about before, even um, Bodo Glimpse managers kind of spoken about how there's only three fixed positions in the in the of the outfielders. For Arsenal, everything else kind of can float or rotate as needed. City do rotations, but in a very strict positional manner. Um, Pep likes to kind of keep that almost like atomic shape of, of players knowing where they are, using the space like that. We kind of do this, I think it kind of falls into the sort of basketball rule thing we've been speaking about, about players floating around, creating offloads um, and moving into spaces where needed and recognising recognizing where they can fill in more than than where they need to be um Jamie Carragher was speaking about how we're kind of like this combination of like Klopp and Pep in a sense and I do think there's something in it we move a lot quicker through the thirds um City obviously do have moments where they're very they're lightning on the counter but not so much there is that sense of Pep's like 15 pass rule where you kind of settle and then you create the adjust we often just like to to commit forward and we use things like um, dynamic sort of advantages, positional advantages. We've spoken about how we create depth to attack. City so do a little bit less of that in, in as fluid a way, I would say. So there are there are some differences between the two of us. Um. Yeah. No. I I, I agree with all that. I I've seen a lot of people, you know, speculating whether it's the whether the youth of the Arsenal side is contributing to you know the sense we get watching them of like this being just a generally more energetic team than city um i th- i think you know everything alex said is spot on i think city this year are it's just a little bit of a transition year for them you know it's not i don't, i don't think the the you know 25 goal striker has made them worse i think it's just it's more just about the long-term squad building of it, of they brought in a player on a massive contract and they had to get rid of three players who were in the last year of their contracts. And so I, I think they will adjust to Holland 
just fine, I think. I don't think he's slowing them down as a team. And I don't think they, I, you know, I, I think it's just adjusting to a long-term squad building change that I think they will adjust just fine to. And having said that, it's still like, I don't know. I mean, when Le- people are always tempted to be like, oh, Manchester City are bad this year, and that's the only reason Arsenal are winning a title. I mean, the best Liverpool team of my lifetime only won a title when Manchester City lost nine games in a season and had an injury crisis. You know, you need, you do need them to falter a little bit, no matter how good you are. And they haven't faltered like that much, I don't think. Um, we've been really good, and we've been getting some of the bounces. I like that question of like whether Haaland has or what 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 has he caused for City in terms of the way of issues, and I do think he has. I don't think he's made them worse. I don't think Haaland's like the reason City are struggling, but I do think I agree completely in terms of this transitional year thing. And this is what I was actually expecting at the beginning of the season. I expected them to struggle more. I think I maybe even underrated just how good Haaland was going to be in the Premier League. But there is this sense the squad is really built for this like pass to death. You can score from anywhere sort of situation, right? Where, you know, everyone can kind of score kind of like how we are now, but you pass them to death and then boom, 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 goals, right? And they've got the right sort of players for that. I think now where you've got far more, a way more clear, you know, outlet that you're trying to funnel balls into to get the goals from, it has made them a little bit more, you would never call City one-dimensional, but it's made them a little bit more predictable. And I think also you don't have the sort of players, like I would specifically think in terms of, um, explosive wide players to kind of create those separations to to as predictable as it is it's inevitable that you're going to score that sort of cut back into into Haaland goal they don't create those as often it's often crosses from the half spaces and stuff because they don't really have those players you can just burst and I think that is something to be said that it kind of as the squad churns Pep brings in new players I've seen City links to Rafael Yao makes a lot of sense as someone who can both play in a pep system but also has that explosiveness to to create that separation to put that ball across for Haaland I I think if there is something about that the squad hasn't quite adapted to or changed in this transition yet to what you want to build around Haaland right yeah and I, I think the big one of the biggest things that speaks to how um how much of a transition year this is for City is that their most dynamic forward is arguably the 31-year-old Riyad Mahrez. Uh, like, they really <laughs> do need some more reinforcements in that way. No, no, not knocking Mahrez at all. He's been incredible. But, like, you want... If the guy who's doing all the running in your attack is 31, then you're probably going to run into some issues pretty soon. I think the Haaland thing is very interesting. Uh, I think... The one-dimensionality that you mentioned is probably the exact opposite effect that they would have hoped for when they brought him in. They would have been hoping that he adds an extra dimension to their attack by meaning that they could play around and pass you to death, but also go direct to Haaland. And it seems that they've had to shut off one way in order to facilitate the other, which uh, a lot of people would argue has made them worse. And It reminds me of the discussion around... Manchester United and Ronaldo when he first signed back for them a lot of people were discussing about how how many goals does one player have to score for it to be worth it that they don't do very much if anything out of possession and I think that question has a different answer depending on how good your team is but it seems that the answer for City is that they're not quite it is that this they're struggling with that adaption I'm not going to say they're worse (laughs) <laughs> it would feel harsh to say the worst, but it is struggling with that adaption for sure. 
it's not only a question of whether how good your team is. I think it's also how good you are, right? I think Ronaldo had the mm. same sort of effect when he was at Real Madrid. He was this main outlet. Other other of his teammates, like Benzema, were scoring less and contributing a little bit less in terms of goals because everything was getting funneled through Ronaldo. Yeah. But it was so worth it because he was scoring, what, like 70, 60, 70 goals a season. Um, and then assists as well. Like, it was absolutely worth it. And then he got shit, and he was still doing that. He was still trying to funnel, and suddenly no one was scoring because the shit guy can't but Ronaldo score. wasn't scoring either. <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, like, Haaland is much, much better than Ronaldo, especially now. Haaland isn't the whole out, like, in possession, out of possession that Ronaldo was at United, especially at the start of this season. He's not, like, a a complete and utter negative to the side. We're making it but, sound like he's anything near Ronaldo. He's got like 25 goals by January. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I, like so, yeah. he's much better scoring more goals and not as bad to their like structure, but still oh, the yeah, adaptation did, yeah. is there. And like, it's something the, that they're having yeah. to contend with. Again, it's the adaptation to him rather than even the adaptation of him to the system. I think more at this point. I was curious what you guys think about, um, how much losing Zinchenko in addition to helping us might have hurt City because I I won't pretend like I've watched like I last season was watching City year round but it it felt like he was you know pretty useful in kind of closing out games for them and this season they've scored they've conceded like a lot of late goals like I think most of their drop points this season it was like after the 70th minute that someone equalized or Ivan Tony scored or something so I'm just wondering if you guys think there there's like correlation there or just yeah obviously like his gap in the squad was filled by Sergio Gomez who they brought in in the summer and he's only played five times in the league this season uh, whereas Zinchenko got a lot more minutes so like in that sense they've definitely been weakened because they don't have a ready-made left back option to fill in and and also I mean Sergio Gomez player really like he's a lot more attacking. And a little bit more traditional. He can play. He he was also an attacking mid- midfielder coming through Barcelona and, and Borussia Dortmund. But he he likes to play in those wide kind of play those overlapping balls in. So he's a bit more traditional of a obviously a wing back than anything that Zinchenko is. To answer your question, I'm not completely sure. I think they kind of tried to readjust that role now with this Rico Lewis guy is kind of almost the inverting on the other side. I'm I'm not not entirely sure. I think they give up more transitions and you know, as a nature of what the team is now. I think that probably that probably hurts them more than having Sinchenko there. But I think it's a quality option at the back. I think Sinchenko is obviously something that Pep and Man City weren't braced for um, originally and has hurt them, yeah, I would say. Let's wrench this conversation back towards Arsenal once again. I feel like we've gone a lot more in-depth on our opinions on the Manchester sides than we have in other podcasts which to be fair makes sense we are talking about games against united and city but let's pull it back to what we can do uh and i'll ask how max do you think we should approach this game do you think we should take any game specific precautions like adapt our play to man city or do you think we should go at it the same way that we have everyone else um it's a good question i think i've changed a lot in how I approach these things. I used to want to be like, throw every game that isn't the Premier League. I, I do not care. And that it is, I'm realizing that like, coaches, especially coaches named Mikel Arteta, just don't view it like that. Pros don't view it like that. You're never going to send a team out on purpose to lose. 
Um, for me, my main thing is I just really hope we protect Zinchenko and Partey and ideally Saka as well. That would be, if, if we are able to really limit their exposure, I wouldn't be too bothered about the result either way. I think if we, if we lose and lose gracefully, you know, maybe we'll have a score to settle when we play them in the league. If we win, I think that, you know, helps with confidence as well. Um, so I guess if, if those three players can really exit without like much more than a half. Also, it's like, I should say that, um, you know, we, we tend to draw a straight line from minutes played to injuries and it doesn't really work that way. And, you know, we have another entire week before the Everton game, I believe it is. Um, but you would just never forgive yourself if an injury happened in, in a cup game to an important player who could have not played. Um, so I think play relatively strong, uh, keep the game close, and limit the exposure to those two or three players. Yeah, I, I agree particularly with um, with approaching the game. I think I think it's an important one to 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 hurt City. I agree that um, the pros don't view it that way. Arteta doesn't view it that way. The team definitely wants to 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 win this game for sure. I mean, not besides just it being FA Cup as another thing that we're still in the running for. Just wanting to beat City, I think, is big. I think taking like a three 0 loss or something like that would really not be great for this for the momentum of this team. Winning, winning would be huge for the momentum. You at least want to keep it close. Um, and then in terms of adapting to the team from a tactical point of view, I don't think we should. I think we should. Obviously, there are always some specific adaptions, but I don't think we should make any compromises on how we play and how the system works to to hit City. I don't think we're gonna start off and you know be sitting in a, in the blocks that we have been versus City even last season how we used to play against them. I don't think I want to see that from us at all. I want us to to play like we are the better team, right? Regardless of whether that's true or not. I think it's potentially true. I think City have probably had games where they're far more dominant than we have been over their opposition, particularly since um Gabite went out the newer system. We we don't really dominate teams so much as, as beat them quite comfortably. But they've also had games where they really struggled. There's that more that variance in their play style in their performance than in ours. And I think if we yeah, if we play strong we can be the better side. Um so I wouldn't want to see any changes in terms of what we can expect from Pep and City. I mean, it's it's got it's Pep Guardiola, so you never really know what to to start. He could start off with Rodri as like the single centre back, for we know. So and we're not going to try and make predictions there, but but yeah, I think we should approach it with with a a will to kind of dominate them. Yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. It's not a league game, but. I think the one thing I'll be looking for this weekend is for us to approach this game like we're a team five points ahead of them in the table. Like, we can't be scared of them. If we're scared of them, it's not going to go very well, I don't think. I think we've got to go at them and really test ourselves in that way. If we do that and do it to the level that we have been throughout this season, I think we'll probably be proud of how we played regardless of how the result goes. Absolutely. Let's, let's do a prediction. It's not a league game, but I don't care. I'm going to make you predict it anyway. Uh, Alex Collings, what do you think the score's going to be? 2-1 Arsenal. <laughs> Max, what do you think the score's going to be? 1-0 Arsenal. I'm going to go for a 2-all draw. 
do they go to penalties these days in the first round, fourth round of the FA Cup, or is it a replay? I think it's penalties, and I'm gonna go with an Arsenal win on penalties. Well, I can, I can believe that. I can believe that for sure. Okay, let's end off there with the thing that we always end off with: Charles's trivia book. Current scores: Collins has got two questions three. right. Three. Uh, Haven't I got three? Three questions right. Have we done enough pods for that? I'm gonna go for three. We we can check the last pod if you want. I know. I know you keep doing this thing where you like are like. I think it's this, but I'm gonna say this thing that I don't think it is, and then you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> what we're gonna do is this week Alex is gonna go first, so he can't do that. Um, but Max, you still get to give me a random number between one and one hundred and twenty-one, uh, so I can choose what what question we're going for. One hundred and thirteen. 113 is uh, the start of a chapter, so I'm just going to go with the 114, because there is actually some questions on the back of there. Uh, So, Arsene Wenger once said, I'm sorry he didn't cost £50 million. Which player was he referring to? A. Rob Holding, B. Mikel Arteta, C. Per Metzaka, or D. Hector Bellerin? Alex Collings. I'm actually... I feel bad. I feel like I've been lucky again by Rob Holding. Yeah, a. And uh, Max, I'm I'm not gonna change my answer just because someone else said it. It's Rob Holding. <laughs> you are both correct. The answer is a. Rob Holding. Uh, Arsene Wenger once said, "I'm sorry, Rob Holding didn't cost fifty million pounds." And with that, we will leave it there. Thanks, Max, for coming on. Uh, if people want to find more of your opinions, where can they do so? Uh, I am at asna underscore maz on Twitter. If you want to know how to spell that, it's in the description, so you can just go and click it and you'll be fine. Alex Collings has been sitting in a room that's been getting increasingly dark over yeah, the course you of know, the episodes. Let me, let me explain myself. I was going to, because load shedding, basically sometimes the power just switches off. And basically what happened is I think all the lights shorted. So that's a problem that I will have to deal with. But I have these lights... No, the audience can't see, but you guys can. So this is what I'm. This is how I'm living Spooky. at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so let's but, wrap this up quickly before Alex's internet gets turned off by the government, which will uh, actually happen in three minutes. So we should, yeah. Yeah, we should. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to find Alex, you can do so on Twitter at AlexFRCO. If you want to find me, you can find me at Alex Towels. If you want to find the pop sh- the podcast, it's at Pop Shot Pod. Mr. James Blake makes our music. He's at JW Blake on the Spotify's and all that. We will be back next week to discuss the City game and whatever league game we have coming up next. I don't know what it is. Everton. You might. Pardon? Everton. Everton. New manager bounce. New manager yep. bounce Everton. We will be discussing More that. More scary than City. Inevitably, inevitably, we are going to lose that after beating City. I can feel it in my bones. But we'll get to that next week. Thanks very much for listening. See you there.